The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. It's just after the midday mark on this, the 21st of November, 2022. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Confidential Brief, proudly brought to you by Rubber Roof Waterproofing. Today I'm going to be in conversation with Zakir Mohammed and Chris Tabia from the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners about financial crime in the private and public sectors and its links to organized crime. Organized crime is very much in the spotlight at the moment because of some high-profile arrests that have been taking place over the last couple of weeks, specifically last week, where international fugitives from Israel were captured in a pre-dawn raid. And we're now hearing that two fugitives from another murder case in Ireland have also been arrested by the South African authorities working together with their international counterparts from both Interpol and those foreign law enforcement agencies. All of this bodes well in the fight against crime, but what a lot of people don't seem to realize is that organized crime is intrinsically linked to what we call money laundering. And this in itself may have contributed towards South Africa's imminent listing as a grey-listed company by FATF, a grey-listed country rather by FATF, the Financial Action Task Force. We'll be chatting about this and more when we come back straight after this. I'd like to remind you, of course, that the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily mine or that of Chai FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. It's always a distinct honor and a pleasure to be joined in studio by Zakir Mohammed and Chris Devere from the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. And our chats normally revolve about, around financial crime and how it impacts our country's economy. Last week was International Fraud Awareness Week, and of course, the ICFP was exceptionally busy there. Chris, good afternoon. Tell us a little bit more about some of the activities that uh, the ICFP were involved with last week. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having us again. Yeah, last week, like you said, was a, quite a busy for the ICFP. We had uh, quite a number of initiatives throughout the country, more so on the on the online platforms, which uh, looked at um, digital scams, fraud, and then um, we had a discussion about uh, organized crime. We discussed uh, man in the middle attacks of email business, email compromise. Um, I eventually traveled to Bloemfontein to give a talk about fraud and corruption in general. Um, there was quite a number of delegates from the from the Free State Government there, and I'm, um, I was privileged to speak there. And on Friday we had a whistleblower from uh, Finland, uh, what we um, what was involved in Namibia, like which is known as the fish rod scandal. Um, I think it's also privileged to hear what he has to say and the ordeals that he had to go through to to be where he is now. Chris, you mentioned that um, in the Free State you had members of the Free State Provincial Government present. That to me is heartening to hear that they're there. But the engagement that you had, is there seriousness? Because Free State, of course, we had the Estina Dairy um, scandal and there's been other scandals that have emanated out of Free State. Is there a sense of seriousness on the part of these government officials that you engaged with? Well, I was was quite... um happy to see what, what the initiative that they brought in the last few years. Our first time that we've met um, in 2018, I met with the Premier of the Free State and the MEC for Finance. 
I've met with them again, and there was this overall um, urgent um, call to the mayors that was present that on, on Thursday to um, to urgently and actively fight corruption and fraud. If you one looks at the the audit report from the Auditor General that came out in the Free State, there's a huge improvement in, in terms of clean audits. So encouraging from what they're doing. Zakir, welcome to the show firstly. And secondly, um, last week you were very involved with the organized crime presentations. Take our listeners through what organized crime discussions you had and how it is that organized crime can impact on each and every citizen in South Africa. Good afternoon, Chad, and to our listeners out there. And Chad, thanks again for, for having us on the show this afternoon. So this year for International Fraud Week, we thought that we should put the spotlight on organized crime. It is a growing problem, not just nationally, but globally as well. And we need to create awareness about what organized crime is, how it permeates in our society and affects us as individuals and our businesses as well. So if you look at organized crime, organized crime is... At a basic level, it's a group of individuals that come together to perpetrate a whole host of crimes over a period of time. Now, there's various kinds of organized crime. We would be familiar with rhino poaching, having read about it in the media over the last couple of years, the syndicates that targeted the airport a few years ago, then the syndicates that, that have targeted some of our um, national institutions, ESCOM, Transnet, PRASA, etc. But... We often don't think that organized crime and syndicate activity affects us as individuals and our businesses as well. And when we talk about organized crime facing us as individuals and our businesses, we talk about incidents of cybercrime where a grouping of individuals come together to perpetrate cybercrime against individuals and entities. Then there's also some syndicates that would actively target businesses to try and defraud these organizations because obviously they see business as a key source of funding the illicit activities because for organized crime syndicates, this is how they fund themselves, this is how they earn a living, and this is how they support their lifestyles. And if I had to break down organized crime into different characteristics, what you're looking at when it comes to an organized crime syndicate, it may sound like a movie, and you probably would have seen this, um, you know, in some series and movies and that sort of thing, but in some syndicates, we've, we've got what we call mafia-type syndicates, where you've got a mastermind or puppet master that leads the syndicate. And then you've got other role players uh, or some type of hierarchical structure where everybody has a different role to play. So in some syndicates, you might get a researcher who goes out there and, and looks at what businesses they can target or how they can find vulnerabilities in a business. You might have another individual that does the software programming to try and see how they can develop malicious software. You might get, and this is something relevant for, for individuals out there, what we call dumpster divers. And these are individuals that actually walk the streets and they dig in your trash to look for sensitive or confidential information. And that's why we always tell people, be very careful about what it is that you're throwing away. And so that's how these syndicates are structured. It is a growing problem locally as well. The statistics that we've seen over the last couple of years don't show a slowing down in the trend of organized crime syndicates and that's largely because it's obviously very lucrative for these criminals because it's not something we think about every day. Chris, what I've noticed is that criminal syndicates operate almost like a business. Some have taken it one step further. They operate in plain sight where they have a organogram, they have their top tier leadership, their management and the people that actually go out and recruit victims 
or persuade people to part with their money. South Africa has the unfortunate record of having some of the highest crypto-related crimes in the world. But I, I don't want to look specifically at crypto. I just want to name the organizations because fraud is fraud, theft is theft. But over the last few years, we've had BTC Global. We've had Mirror Trading International, we've had AfriCrypt, we've had Presidium, we've had Imagino, all of which run into the absolute billions of rands. With these organizations running themselves as businesses, surely they've now got resources to be able to hire the very best um, legal minds to look after them. And this kind of puts law enforcement on the back foot, considering the amount of work law enforcement has to contend with. Now, you know, um, Benjamin Franklin was quoted as saying that um, investment in knowledge pays the highest interest. So that's certainly true for our, for any industry that, uh, industry in the, in the world, but certainly more so for the fraudsters. They make sure they understand methodologies, processes, control, environment, systems, but they want to also understand the human side of of uh, humanity side of of, um, of people, the psychology side of people, to to pounce on the, the 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 vulnerable, the needy, but now also the greedy. You spoke about, and 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 that's uh, the good picture of what state capture does is on the greedy side. You spoke about the virtual currency, how that's been used, uh, and that's an easy way for organised crime syndicates to hide the illicit flows. If you look at some of the investigations that uh, the MPA is involved now um, and SAPS and the Hawks are involved with is that there's, there's a lot of focus on the organized crime, crime side. It's a huge business, like you said. They study this, they understand this. Um, we, we, we have a, in terms of my, from, from my perspective, we've got a bit of a problem um, in skills development. Uh, how do we train people to investigate those highly complex environments. It is a bit frightening, and I think the, the, the aspect that's of most concern is, like you said, they understand the area in which they operate. They also understand the legislation, and they try to find a gray area in which to operate. From a legal perspective, um, Zakir, everybody's entitled to a defense, but a lot of these syndicates, they seek advice prior to executing their crimes and they have the top top attorneys that are there to give them this advice is there ever a moral or ethical dilemma placed on an attorney when somebody comes to them for advice on a crime that they are in the process of committing Absolutely. So definitely from an ethical perspective and from a legal perspective all lawyers you you are allowed to defend anyone However, if anyone ever comes to you and asks you for advice on how to commit a crime, as an attorney, you are not allowed to do that. It is illegal. It is unethical. Uh, and as an attorney, you can be disbarred for giving advice and assisting someone to perpetrate a crime. So all attorneys out there have that responsibility to be the guardians when it comes to that kind of behavior. Uh, but the unfortunate thing is, and this is the reality of the world that we live in, unfortunately there are individuals out there who, who seek to profit, you know, from at, at all costs. And unfortunately in certain instances it does include members of the legal profession, which is, it is a sad state of affairs. Um, I think Chris has mentioned that, you know, organized crime syndicates are very well resourced and they're willing to pay 
to make sure that they make their business as lucrative as possible in the way they perpetrate their crimes. Zakir has just touched on such an important point, the fact that attorneys are officers of the court, and as such they're compelled in law to report anything that comes to their attention where a crime may be committed. There's not just the aspect of privilege and the aspect of defending their clients. We're going to be continuing the conversation with Chris Beer and Zaki Mohammed straight after this word from our advertisers. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. We're in conversation today with Zakir Mohammed and Chris Tabir from the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. And so far we've covered the aspects of organized crime and how it's reaching into all aspects of business as well as the public sector. And we've also covered the, the International Fraud Awareness Week and how the ICFP was very involved in respect of presentations to the public and to membership of the importance of understanding these complex type financial crimes as well as organized crime. Right now, I want to chat about something that is about to impact on so many South Africans, in fact, on every single one of us, but it hasn't really been covered as much in the media in respect of what's going to happen as a result of that, and that's the grey listing. So before we get to Zaki, who's going to take us through um, grey listing, what money laundering is, what what the type of protocol should be in place, I'd like to ask Chris to just basically give us an understanding of what grey listing entails and why South Africa is being um, lined up to be placed on a specific list administered by the Financial Action Task Force. Chad Fatef and then the Eastern and South African Anti-Mouldering uh, Committee did an uh, assessment in 2019. And previously they made 40 recommendations, of which 20 are still outstanding. So we've been given um, a deadline to comply with those outstanding um, issues by um, March 2023. The impact, if we do not comply to, to some or, or FATF see that we at least did not make an effort on the uh, uh, South African economy side, you know, uh, uh, investigators done a study on what the impact will be, and they've shown that within the first 150 days, uh, the rand will devalue with 4%. Within the next 300 days, another uh, 8%. Um, the South African Rand being one of those most volatile trading f- currencies in the world, that's going to have a huge impact. It makes debt more expensive. It makes loaning more expensive. And obviously, when you travel and buying, importing. Currently, in South Africa, we're sitting with a trade deficit of about 15%, which means we import more than we export. If you see South Africa as a business, it's not sustainable that you spend more than you earn. And then if you look at your debt-to-GDP ratio, which is more or less 70%, meaning we say for every one rand that we have, we're spending 70% um, on debt. We owe 70%, 70 cents to debt. Just think about the interest payment on that 70 cents. So the impact, we're sitting at a pivot point. Uh, currently, in terms of the economy, fraud and corruption is not helping. It's going to push us over that uh, that uh, threshold. So, Kiel, wh- what is grey listing? Where did the term come about, and how is it that a country can be grey listed? 
Yeah, so if you look at um, anti-money laundering measures globally, you mentioned the Financial Action Task Force. Now, the Financial Action Task Force is, is a global body that basically sets the standards of what countries should have from an anti-money laundering perspective. So at a very basic level, they set out 40 standards and member states need to have these 40 basically recommendations in place and that has to permeate in the legislation that we have locally. Now locally we've got the Financial Intelligence Center Act which is our key piece of anti-money laundering legislation and basically as South Africa has subscribed to follow the FATF principles and basically what happens is when the FATF does an assessment on South Africa and what measures South Africa has taken from a regulatory perspective to try and combat money laundering meaning what have we done in terms of our legislation, what have we done in terms of our practical measures to combat money laundering, if we fall short of those 40 recommendations they will then grey list us and basically that grey listing is an indicator that you would use globally to say is this country a haven or for, for money laundering type activity? Do they have weak, basically, for lack of a better word, controls and regulatory systems in place when it comes to money laundering? And the effect of that is we're then seen as a high-risk country. And that's ultimately going to permeate into a whole host of things. One of it is global organizations are going to be reluctant to invest in South Africa because we're going to be seen as an expensive country to invest in. We're going to be seen as a high-risk country or to do business with. And so it's going to have an effect on business deals, etc. But then overall, it's going to affect every single individual in the country. And the best example that I can use of this is you know, often you may hear someone say that, you know, corruption or commercial crime is a victimless crime because you don't actually maybe see somebody physically get attacked, etc. But the response to that is any type of commercial crime, be it money laundering, uh, cyber crime or other types of commercial crime, is not a victimless crime. And we are currently living in the environment that is the result of rampant fraud, corruption, and money laundering and organized crime activity. It affects all of us because we pay more taxes. Uh, it becomes more costly to do business. There's a significant weakening of our state institutions because they have been infiltrated by organized criminals. And there's a significant lack of service delivery. And ultimately, it affects the ordinary man in the street. And so, you know, a gray listing has a rippling effect throughout the economy. So it affects businesses and it affects individuals alike. Zaki, it's, it sounds like it's punitive that it's a sanction and that it will impact on the people that are most dependent on a country that has a sustainable income and GDP. When one looks at the legislation in South Africa, whether it's the Provincial Organized Crime Act, the Financial Intelligence Center Act, the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act, and a whole host of other legislation, we seem to have the right legislation in place. So what is lacking? What took us to the point of, of, of imminent gray listing? Yeah, so I always say that as a country we're very good at legislating, but where there's a lot of work that needs to be done and should be done is the implementation and enforcement of our legislation. That is the area that we really, really need to work on. And ultimately, one may develop the mindset to say, ah, oh, it's government's problem, etc. But I strongly believe that it is a combination of us in the private sector, us as individuals, getting involved as well and playing our part to eradicate this. And 
you know, there's a whole host of things that can be done. Obviously, there's the role that government needs to play when it comes to the enforcement of our legislation um, to give it the teeth that it actually needs. But then in our private in our private lives, in our businesses as well, we need to take issues like anti-money laundering and commercial crime seriously. We need to make it incredibly difficult for organized criminals to infiltrate our organization. So as unfortunate as it is, commercial crime and anti-money laundering, etc., needs to be top of mind for us as well because that's the only way we can really tackle all of this is through a collective mindset to say, well, what can I do? Because every single thing, every single act counts in the fight against organized and commercial crime. Chris, you mentioned something interesting. You said there's there's 40 um, issues that need to be addressed, of which 20 have been addressed. There's another 20 that need to be looked at. When one looks at Open Secrets Report in 2019, the enablers, and one looks at a recent book that was published called The Unaccountables, they talk about all the other organizations, be they private sector or public sector, that are involved in enabling money laundering to take place or state capture on a grand scale. These 20 issues that are outstanding by March of next year, is it possible for South Africa to tick those 20 boxes and stay off that grey list? Well, Craig, there were some actors in, in government and private sectors that certainly worked hard to address some of those issues. My doubt is I'm doubtful that we will address all those 20, out, uh, 20 outstanding issues, but... If in terms of FATF's eyes, we, they see that we've made some progress, I think we could avert the grey listing. Although it, I think it's early days, um, I haven't had a lot, a lot of reports, but I know people are working quite hard behind the uh, scenes. So Zaki, before a elective conference like we're about to see in December with the ruling party, and before a local or general election, we see a couple of high-profile arrests taking place. And then it drags out and drags out and drags out. Can we anticipate something similar before March of 2023 where there's going to be a concerted effort on the part of law enforcement to take action against organizations that may be currently involved or may have been involved in state capture and by virtue of that money laundering, which has led to this imminent listing? Absolutely. I think... If, if you look at it from two perspectives, there's now pressure to see action, to see something done. And so obviously they are going to take steps to make sure that it's seen that those steps are done. Because obviously we do want to avoid a grey listing um, because of the consequences it's going to have. And if I use one example over the last couple of years, over the last couple of years what we've seen is a start of significant media reporting on rampant corruption and commercial crime. And that has put the spotlight on state capture and commercial crime issues in the country. And the media has been very helpful in that perspective. But that had placed pressure on government to do something. And so then we had commissions of inquiry into all of these particular issues. Now the commissions are done. And so now the pressure is on to say, okay, well, it's well and good that we've done these commissions of inquiry. What next? And so the pressure is definitely there from members of the public, driven by the media, which I think is a good thing, to actually get government to do something about um, bringing you know, all of these criminals to book. And so what we're starting to see is a turn of the tide. We're starting to see some high-profile arrests. So we're slowly seeing 
action coming in from our law enforcement authorities by way of arrests. I mean, the one example you mentioned at the start of the show was the the arrest last week of um, organized uh, crime individuals or members of a syndicate. And a few weeks ago, we've also seen some high-profile individuals being arrested uh, for allegations of fraud and corruption. So I think the, the tide is turning. I think definitely now the pressure is on to see some action, so we will. But let's hope that we continue on that trajectory of high-profile arrests and bringing people to book. Zakir, I've always been a optimist, and I always believe we're turning the corner, but I mentioned that just before an elective conference and just before a general election, we see what I refer to as token arrests. What's going to make this any different? What do you want to see from the state in terms of follow-through in respect of what's going to be a very busy four months leading up to March 2023? Uh, for me personally, I think less talk and more action. Action speaks louder than words. So what we really need to see is support to our national prosecuting authority when it comes to these, uh, you know, bringing these individuals to book. And so they need the support. What we need less of is promises. What we need less of is talking and meeting to caucus and discuss. I think we've had enough discussions around commercial crime issues. I think now we need to spend our time actually actioning a lot of it. There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of evidence out there. I think a lot of support needs to be given to our law law enforcement authorities to bring these individuals to book. And we mentioned on the show that organized crime syndicates and individuals that perpetrate commercial crime are very well resourced and so they will throw their resources at defending themselves we need to throw our resources at fighting against that so we can bring them to book chris zaki raises an exceptionally important point here and that's the fact of resources and infrastructure now when one looks at the investigating directorate we know that they're not fully capacitated as yet we know that skilled members from the DPCI, the Hawks, and skilled members from the National Prosecuting Authority, specifically the Specialized Commercial Crimes Unit, are being seconded in respect of state capture matters, state tender matters, and PPE fraud. What then happens to the other cases that those members were investigating? Is there sufficient skills transfer taking place, and are there sufficient members to pick up the slack when we see specialized members being seconded for these high-profile cases? Jared, I would like to say yes, but unfortunately it's not the case. I think the the fact that the idea has been made permanent, investigative director, is one step in the right direction. Now you need to populate those um, the DCPI and the ID with the right skills. Certainly there are people that's quite capable, highly skilled and trained, uh, but that's that's not enough. There's, the cases will will um, will fall behind. Um, those, like you said, the state capture and those uh, highly publicised uh, cases are are being addressed. But what about the other crimes that's not in the news on a daily basis? I'm afraid. Those is going to stay behind. Which takes me to my next point. There's been a problem, in my opinion, of skill transfer. We've got natural attrition. Uh, Minister Becky Chaley said he's signing off 300 senior retirements a month from within the police. I don't believe the skill transfers is taking place. How do we introduce a mentorship trap? program to the new young generation of detectives that still have to reach that point of experience 
Jeff, there's a, there's, I just want to go back one step. There's a, there's, a, there's a big problem in South Africa, and that's unemployment. What does unemployment do? A person will take a job, any job that he can take. If he's got the passion or the right skill sets for that job, doesn't matter. He's got a job. That's a problem that we need to address first and foremost. Then in terms of uh, skills transfer, learnership programs, I think there's a lot of institutions trying. We at the ICFP is also now working on a mentorship program. Unfortunately, the, the problem is so huge that it will take us years to get those people through. You're talking about retirement. In our, in our instance as well, there's a lot of old um, investigators sitting at the age of 58 to 65 going to retirement. And that's why one of the reasons we established the ICFP years back is to see how we can um, capacitate our industry before those people retired. Um, those, the first students that we've trained in 2012, 13, they are getting into managerial positions now uh, and they've got the skills, but it was, I think, a bit too late and too little. But we are trying our best. We're training close to 400 investigators a year and hopefully that will make an impact in, in, in that instance. I think it's very important that we do look at the skills deficit. We look at the natural attrition of um, accomplished, experienced investigators, like you mentioned, a lot of them are reaching the end of their of their careers. But how can we somehow retain that? And I think that's going to be the topic of the last segment of our conversation: is how do we retain that knowledge and be able to pass it on? And what programs are in place to be able to capacitate and educate those that are now entering? the industry. You're listening to Confidential Brief. I'm in conversation with Zakir Mohammed and Krista Beer. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Today we're in conversation with Zakir Mohammed and Krista Beer from the Institute of Co- Commercial Forensic Practitioners. Our conversation today has been mainly around the fact that South Africa is going to be grey listed, uh, which is of, con- of, of huge concern. And we've chatted about the moves government is making to fight organised crime and money laundering. And I want to talk a little bit about the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. So, can you take us through a bit of the programs that have been introduced? Because those programs are very important when it comes to giving capacity and knowledge to people wanting to work in this environment. Uh, thank you, Jed. Yeah, so at the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners, there is there is a board course that individuals can do, uh, which offers individuals with some sort of formalized knowledge that one could have in commercial forensic investigations. Uh, and this course includes various modules. One of them is a legal module, which focuses on, you know, some of the basic laws around evidence gathering, conducting an investigation, the do's and don'ts. And these are very important because obviously when you conduct any investigation, the last thing you want is for your investigation to be targeted for having contravened the law in the way that you con- conducted your investigation. So that module focuses on that. Then we've got another module which deals with forensic accounting, uh, and that is also critically important because when you're dealing with commercial crime, obviously the best way to catch the crook is to follow the money. 
And so these forensic accounting principles that are dealt with in that particular course um, deals with um, following the money and the kind of principles and processes that one would need to follow in order to conduct a meaningful financial type investigation. Um, and then that's also complemented by two other courses in relation to general investigations and the principles around investigations, etc. So that is a very useful tool, um, obviously, to get some sort of formalized knowledge. Um, and once you complete that course, you can become a forensic practitioner, South Africa, uh, which um, is the highest level of membership that you can have with the, the ICFP. Um, and that obviously assists you with building your CV, getting the skills necessary to enter into the job market and to operate in this particular space. Chris, let's talk about these courses. Um, you have relationships with some of the top universities in South Africa, and these are not just courses that are offered via the ICFP. They're underwritten, of course, by the respective universities. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So, Chad, we have to make provision for all levels of knowledge and skills and uh, where people come from. So, like um, Zakira said, for the entry level, we've got a board examination with Northwest University. So before we start with that, we've, we've went, we go out to inter industry to identify, um, aspects and shortcomings in our, in the, in the environment at the current rate to introduce to the, into the courses. We also, because of universities got a, uh, between a 20 and a 30 percent change in the curriculum, which they can implement any, annually without going to Senate, the speed to market is quick. We can implement new legislation and uh, bring it into the, into the courses. So we've got five modules. We've got the forensic accounting course, like Zakira said, we look at lifestyle audits or lifestyle analysis and uh, illicit money flows and so forth. We've got the law module. We've got investigation and then cybercrime, very, very high um, on the agenda there. Um, we do not want to make everybody a cybercrime expert. But understand the legislation between behind it, and then obviously the basics. But I think one of the modules that we're not giving them enough attention to in South Africa is prevention, and it's a fraud risk site. So we've got a matrix that we've uh, was developed. Uh, look at our overall fraud prevention strategy that companies can implement. So that course is, has been uh, registered department of higher education and training. So also we've got a course with a that we created from university two courses, University of Pretoria. Um, it's a postgrad diploma and then a PH uh, uh, MPhil um, uh, at the NQF nine level, and then also UNISA. It's got a postgrad at the uh, NQF eight level. So we're busy working with other universities to also implement full accreditation programs. It takes a while. But there was, in terms of RPL, other programs throughout Africa, UCT, we've got uh, UKZN and so forth. We've got individual courses that uh, that we've uh, created that will give that person just a heads up when they enroll for the board exam. For instance, if you've done an accounting course somewhere, you understand what's a debit or credit, the analysis of financial statement, money flows and so forth, we give you recognition for that and so forth with the LRB and so forth. And then there's, there's other diplomas um, in uh, U, uh, U, uh, University of Johannesburg, Prof. Dao de Villiers course that we've uh, created and so forth. It gives credibility to those courses because we look at the outcomes of those. We align that with what the industry wants and we can adapt those courses as quickly as possible. In closing, do we see an appetite from the public sector 
to have their teams upskilled in respect of some of these courses that you've mentioned? Chad, from the public sector itself, no, but we're seeing it from the individuals working in the public sector. They've got an urgent need, and they understand that um, they need to develop their own skills. Um, uh, SIU signed a MOU with Psycho at the beginning of the year, it was May, I think, um, to train through our board examination um, forensic accountants. Because currently in South Africa, there's only 104 known forensic accountants um, practicing. Now, if you look at the investigation like Steinhoff, which is very, very complex, you need a combination of skills to do an investigation like that. Forensic accounting is one of them. You need to understand how uh, the money flew, uh, was transferred between different accounts, how the money has been hidden. Then you need the cybercrime side, the, uh, the IT skills, to bring all that together in data analysis. So, yeah, so public sector, no, not yet. Uh, hopefully they will come on board in the next few years. Zaki, in closing from your side, what do we have planned um, at the ICFP for 2023? So for 2023, we want to go bigger and better. I think for the ICFP, it's our mission to foster a culture of growth in our forensic investigation space to upskill individuals in the country to try and see where we can create opportunities for, for these individuals in the commercial crime space. We do want to work with the public sector as well to, to really try and, and tackle the issues of commercial crime. And in this respect, certainly from an events side, there's a lot of events that we have planned for, for 2023. On the one hand, to create awareness around commercial crime issues in the country and globally as well. On the other hand, these events are also geared towards upskilling individuals and providing requisite knowledge on topical commercial crime issues that we're facing. So I would definitely advise everyone to keep an eye out of what the ICFP is doing. Um, we've got our conference, uh, our, our annual conference that will take place in June or July next year, which is a very, very good opportunity to really tackle commercial crime issues and understand those. We will have again numerous events during Fraud Week of 2023 as well, and throughout the year, various uh, in-person uh, training sessions and workshops on commercial crime issues as well as webinars throughout the year. Um, also, in terms of our magazine, we publish our magazine four times a year. And in that magazine, there's a lot of interesting articles about topical commercial crime issues. And so definitely keep a look out for that as well. Thank you so much, Chris, from the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. Zakir from the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. You can find them online, the ICFP. They're on LinkedIn. They're on um, Twitter. They're on Facebook, and of course, you can visit the website. Just search for Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners. Next week, we're going to be continuing our conversation about fraud and how it's impacting on South Africa. This time, we're looking at the digital space with expert Clive Gungadu. So stay tuned. And remember, if you enjoyed today's show, uh, the podcast will be uploaded in a few hours' time to the Chai FM website. That's www.chaifm.com. We will be uploading it to all our social media streams so that you can listen to it. And again, thank you so very much to Chris and Zakir for making the time to come in today. I'd like to thank our sponsor, 
um, Roof Rubber Proofing, who kindly sponsor the show and make sure that uh, you are kept abreast of everything that's happening in the world of fraud. So if you're tired of getting contractors uh, to fix your leaky roof, only to find out that your roof still leaks, well, then it's time to sort that leak out for good. Rubber Roofs manufactures and apply the rubber roof to your roof. Your roof will look great and won't leak anymore. Rubber Roofs offer a 10-year warranty. Rubber Roof is the trusted name in roof waterproofing, using, of course, their unique rubber paint. You can find out more at www.rubberroofs.co.za.